Our scripture reading this morning is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 18, and I'm going to be reading uh, from verses 1 through 11. You can follow along on the screens in your Bibles if you have them with you or uh, in the bulletin as well. This is God's Word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is God's word. Father, we pray uh, that you would once again visit us with your spirit as we encounter you in your word here this morning, Father. May we Leave refreshed in the message of the gospel in all of your works of redemption uh, and changed that we might follow you with a heart that is steadfast. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you know me, uh, you know that um, I don't really mind winter a whole lot, uh, but right around mid-February, I do start, as many of you do, I do start to really crave uh, the springtime. And I know that I start to really crave the springtime because I start thinking about my garden. And my wife will tell you, I start wandering outside at the place where where our garden is. And uh, it all started a couple years ago, probably three or four years ago, uh, when I I put one little box together and started growing tomatoes. And uh, each year, the boxes tend to double in size and they get bigger. And just a couple weeks ago, uh, I built and planted a new box and... uh, so anytime this time of year comes along, I start thinking about my garden, I start plotting out my garden, and I start uh, getting excited for the springtime and growing all sorts of things. Well, if you're paying attention, whenever you read the scriptures, you'll know that gardens are actually all over the scriptures. In fact, the, the history and the story of redemption began in a garden. If you read the book of Genesis, you'll see that Adam and Eve were created, they were placed in a garden, and that garden was called paradise. But what you learn very quickly is that they disobey the Word of God while in that garden, and that casts not only them, but the world into all sorts of sin and pollution and corruption. And when Adam and Eve sinned that very first time, they actually hid in the garden. They tried to hide from God's presence. And then later on, after having a discussion with God, they were exiled. They were expelled from that garden. 
But even in those moments, even in that expulsion from the garden, God began to hint, even in that darkest of moments, God began to hint that at one point he would come and fix all that had gone wrong in the world. Well, if you fast forward uh, the story of redemption to our, our passage in the Gospel of John here this morning, the setting is once again a very dark moment that takes place in a garden. The story begins after the Passover meal. This was uh, the meal in which Jesus uh, had intimately washed each one of his disciples' feet. And what John tells us is that after that meal, they retired outside of the city to a garden, and that garden's name was Gethsemane. The garden was on the Mount of Olives, a popular place for growing olives in the ancient world, And the garden itself was probably a borrowed garden. They probably had a friend or disciple or advocate that owned this garden. And from time to time, Jesus and his disciples would go and spend an evening there. And on this evening, Jesus goes with his disciples. And what the gospel writers tell us is all the other disciples managed to fall asleep. They finally got out of crowded Jerusalem into a quiet place, and each one of them fell asleep, but not Jesus. Jesus, in that garden, goes before his Father, and he prays that if possible, could this cup pass from him? Could this happen in a different way? And, and Luke tells us that Jesus uh, prayed in agony that even drops of blood fell from his brow because of the intensity uh, in which he prayed in which he prayed and the agony that he was feeling in that moment, asking if perhaps there was some other way. But the answer, of course, was there wasn't another way. It was the Father's will that Jesus would need to walk down this path that was before him. And so after these moments of agony, after these moments of prayer, Jesus emerges from this moment in the garden resolved. He has a sense of resolution in him. He fully knew what lay before him. He was singularly focused, despite the fact that everyone around him had no clue what was going on. They were confused. They were bumbling. They were afraid. And later, in all of that confusion and fear, all of his disciples run away. They flee from his presence. But Jesus, in this moment, makes several things very clear. You see, his character and his mission become incredibly clear at this point. And on display for all to see, including us, are two things. We see Christ's kingly authority and we see his servant submission. First thing I'd like to look at is the kingly authority that we see about Jesus in this passage. And in many ways, this passage is all about a show of force. Uh, I was thinking about this this week, and I recalled, um, I guess it was probably around March of 2003, uh, my wife and I uh, were engaged at that point, and I was working my first job. Uh, but in, in March of 2003 was uh, the very beginning of the, what became uh, the much-contested war in Iraq. And uh, in March, uh, I remember turning on CNN, um, learning that things were about to escalate, and watching uh, that evening as the bombs began to fall in Baghdad. It was only 18 months after the events of 9-11, and there was all sorts of controversy around this. 
But I remember that evening watching and learning a military term uh, that was called shock and awe. I'd never heard this term before, but it's a military term uh, that is used when, when a force comes and, and, and shows its boldness or shows its might and power in the attempt of breaking the will of the opponent that they are fighting against. And in, I thought about that event all this week as I looked at this passage because our whole passage is about a show of force between the forces of men and the kingly forces of Jesus. You see here a Jewish show of force, and we read about it in verse 3. It says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. What we know is that Jesus, or or Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, he knew about this place. He knew about this garden. He knew the right time and the right place in order to betray Jesus. And what the Gospels tell us is that he had colluded with the Jews, the religious authorities of the day, in order to bring Jesus down. The Jewish authorities for years had wanted to end Jesus, to get rid of him, but they were waiting for the right political time, and Judas gave them that opportunity. And so, all of them organized together a mob. The authorities were there, the religious professionals were there, the temple police force was there, and of course, Judas, the betrayer himself, was there as well. They wanted to do all this outside of the city under the cover of darkness and secrecy in hope that the arrest of Jesus would not incite a greater uh, mob or a greater commotion. So they did it in darkness and in secrecy. But they, of course, were not the only ones there. There was also a Roman show of force here as well, which is very interesting when you study the history because the Jews hated the Romans. They hated everything about them. You see, they felt oppressed by them and their presence, but the Jews in many ways had learned to tolerate their oppressor. They really had no choice The Romans at this point uh, in the ancient world were the the most powerful force, so the Jews had no option but to submit to them and to their leadership. And it was particularly difficult for them during this Passover event because the Romans during this Passover event would send extra soldiers to Jerusalem. You see, the city of Jerusalem would would swell to around 250,000 people Pilgrims from all over the ancient world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover event. And because of that, the Romans would send extra soldiers for fear that the Jews could get together and incite some riot and overthrow the Romans in that moment. So during this precious religious holiday, the Jews would be reminded that they were oppressed by the Romans. They would be reminded of who was really in charge. Yet in the case of Jesus, it seems, the Jews and the Romans were willing to collude together. And because of that, they brought together a band of soldiers. And some have looked at the Greek in this passage and thought that that this crowd, this amount of soldiers could number in the hundreds that they had gathered together 
to arrest Jesus. Either way, this was a huge show of force. The soldiers were armed with clubs and swords. This was shock and awe in, in, in every essence of the term. The Jews and the Romans were colluding together in order to get rid of Peter, or in order to get rid of Jesus. And Peter, Peter, good old Peter, wanted to respond to the force with force. We see Peter's show of force here too, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. What I love about Peter is, is, is how impetuous he is in this moment. He had his small sword, which was probably just a dagger, but he was ready with that small sword to take on the world. He would go down fighting, and he lunges at a member of that mob, injuring his ear. I can imagine Jesus calmly looking at Peter, looking directly at him, telling him to put his sword away. Jesus, Luke tells us, heals actually the ear of the servant who, who Peter uh, had cut off. And uh, he, Matthew tells us what Jesus even said to Peter. He says to Peter, Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Now, twelve legions of angels would have been roughly around 70,000 angels when probably just one of them would have done the trick. But what Jesus is saying to Peter and to everyone else is that he is choosing not to respond to force with force. But what he does do is he establishes exactly who is in charge in this moment. We see him establishing his kingly authority. The mob comes and they ask where Jesus of Nazareth is, and Jesus says to them, I am he. John tells us, verse 6, when Jesus said this to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I told you, I am he. You see, as this small army approaches the garden, they meet Jesus not knowing who he was. Jesus was actually the one that was greeting them when they came to the garden to arrest him. And Jesus says to him twice, I am he. And they can't believe what they are seeing. They are shocked. They are incredulous at what they are seeing. And really, that's probably for two reasons. One is, why isn't Jesus hiding? Why isn't he running away? That's what criminals do. They run away and hide. But Jesus wasn't going to repeat the same error of Adam in the garden. He wasn't going to do what Adam did. Instead, he presented himself to those that were there to arrest him. But what is also shocking is that Jesus uses the term twice, I am he. Or I am. That is in Greek, the, the ego a me. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I am the I am. That God that spoke to Moses in the burning bush, calling himself, I am, that is me. And I am here in your midst. And what John tells us is when they heard this, they drew back and they fell to the ground 
because they realized that they were in the midst of greatness. You see, Jesus has full command of this situation. The authority has entered the room. Jesus was not subject to the Jewish forces or their authority. He was not subject to the Roman forces or their authority. He wasn't distracted by Peter's impetuous spirit. He had full command and power over everything that was happening. You see, Jesus Christ was God himself. And he recognized that all of this was part of God's sovereign plan to save humanity. This was the path that he needed to walk on. And so he didn't walk on this path kicking and screaming. He wasn't forced down this path by coercion or by force. He was walking this path by his own will and his own power with full authority. And that really leads us to the other thing that is on display here. Because not only do we see the kingly authority of Jesus, but we also see the servant submission of Jesus. Verse 11, so so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, in this narrative and in many others throughout the gospel, we consistently see this image of the cup that is given to Jesus by God the Father. And what that cup was is it was a symbol of something. It was the symbol of the wrath and the anger of God. You see, friends, the gospel is very clear that sin must be punished. For the the justice of God to be satisfied, the, the penalty of sin would need to be paid. And what the gospel is also clear about is that apart from Christ, each person must individually drink the cup of God's wrath for all eternity because of sin and rebellion. But what the gospel also tells us is that Christ came to drink of the cup. He was the servant who submitted his very life to the will of God. And the will of God was that he would suffer. And suffer he did. John Fay, who's a a historian, talks about um, the, the five C's of history and how you always need to think about these five C's of history. And one of them is, is context and change over time. Uh, but one of the key ones, whenever you think about history, is causality. What caused this to happen based on everything that had come before? And the gospel writer, John, when he is writing his theological history here, makes it very clear that the ultimate causality for Christ's death was not the Romans, It was not the Jews, but it was God himself. It's hard for us. We see this dimly as the book of Corinthians puts it, but we have to come to the final conclusion that is this. It was the very will of God that Jesus Christ would be crushed. At the cross, Jesus would drink the full cup of God's wrath so that his children would have no need to drink of that cup. Instead, his children could be blessed. Instead, they could drink the cup of the full blessings of God accomplished on their behalf by Christ. 
You see, the King of Kings, the source of all authority and power, would assume the role of the servant. He would willingly give of his life so that you and I could be forgiven and adopted. He didn't use his his power and his authority as a means of self-advancement. Instead, he set it aside to serve in humility. In beautiful patience and willing commitment, the hands that created the world would be shackled by a Roman soldier. The one who was the epitome of faithfulness and truthfulness and truth itself would allow himself to be betrayed by the kiss of a common man. The one who had created a path through the Red Sea was led by common soldiers down the path of destruction. The God of all power manifested in lightning and thunder on Mount Sinai would restrain the legion of angels at his fingertips and allow himself to be stripped, beaten, falsely accused, and hung on a cross. The God of all kingly authority, would become the ultimate submissive servant. As I mentioned before, the the city of Jerusalem at this time would swell to about 250,000 inhabitants, which was pretty large for the ancient world. And on the Passover evening, the night in which this all took place, Uh, Friends, family would gather together individually in homes, and they would celebrate a very sacred meal called the Passover meal. But before they would do that, they would sacrifice a Passover lamb. And if 250,000 people all separating into these different homes would each sacrifice a lamb, the blood of that sacrifice, would the smell of it would cover the entire city. In fact, a lot of historians believe that even in that city, the streets would run with the excess of blood all over the place because of all of these families who were sacrificing their Passover lamb for that meal. And that's why John starts this narrative by saying that Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley because the Kidron Valley was known as the, the, the valley where all the excess of that blood that was shed would flow through. And Jesus is the one who crosses that valley, arrested by common soldiers. What John tells us is that this is the valley Jesus crossed as he was arrested. This is the valley where Jesus was resolute, the once and for all sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God who was being led to the slaughter so that you and I could be redeemed. See, friends, Jesus meets force with sacrifice so that you and I could escape the force of God's wrath. He was the king who came to serve. Let's pray.